Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. In his short life, Nick Drake released three inspiring records, but it wasn't until decades later that he got his due. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. We remember Nick Drake with his producer, Joe Boyd. And later, Shoegazers, The Besnard Lakes are back with album number four. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that's a little bit of I Touch Myself, which was a huge hit in 1991 for the Australian band The Divinals. That band's leader, Chrissy Amphlett, died recently at age 53, one of a number of notable music world deaths. We also lost Cordell Boogie Mawson, who was the uh, bass player for P-Funk, Parliament Funkadelic, George Clinton's ensemble. Richie Havens, the folk singer who famously played to the world at Woodstock, died at age 72. And Scott Miller, a musician who meant a lot to you and me, died at age 53. Throughout the indie rock 80s, he was the leader of a band called Game Theory, one of the first bands to really forward that big star revival, that wonderful jangly pop sound, folk rock, neo-psychedelic, great songs and wonderful ambition, big sprawling records that were orchestrated in parts and lots of vocal harmonies, lots of really smart literary references in the lyrics. Through the 90s, he was leading another band that was also quite good, Loud Family, and then in recent years, he's kept a low profile. He had uh, written a book in 2010, which was really quite good, Music, What Happened? and he was just now planning to go back to the music of game theory. Terrible loss, dead at the age of 53. In tribute to Scott Miller, we want to play what I think is one of game theory's best tracks. This is from the 1986 album, The Big Shot Chronicles. It's a wonderful pared-down acoustic song where Miller is uh, playing all the instruments and overdubbing his vocals, so it's really a Scott Miller track. It's called Regenis Rain by Game Theory on Sound Opinions. Sleeping off I've tried Freezing is so good for how this is Such the opposite of showbiz Winter houses turning on the glow Christmas based on Christmas long ago How could I have known where this would lead? 
Game Theory with Regenis Rain on Sound Opinions in tribute to Scott Miller, dead at the age of 53. song some of you may recognize is Nick Drake's indelible Pink Moon, but it's not the version from his 1972 album or the famous Volkswagen commercial, but one performed by Paris-based soul singer Crystal Warren and folk rock musician Teddy Thompson, the son of Richard and Linda Thompson. It's part of a new Nick Drake tribute album called Way to Blue that was produced by Joe Boyd. Boyd discovered Drake long before that 99 car commercial propelled him into homes across America. He produced Nick Drake's first two releases, Five Leaves Left in 1969 and Brighter Later in 1970. Pink Moon would follow, and unfortunately it would be Drake's final contribution to the music world before he overdosed on antidepressants at age 26. What a contribution it is, though, Jim. You think, think about this figure that Nick Drake was, the ultimate outsider, this intricate vocabulary on guitar, completely self-taught. The idea of the outsider, such a romantic notion, but it was carried forward by people like Peter Buck and R.E.M. and Jeff Tweedy and Wilco, Jeff Buckley, Beth Orton, Mark Eitzel, Elliot Smith, Grizzly Bear, Bon Iver. You hear his influence in a lot of different places now. Boyd, who's also worked with Bob Dylan, Pink Floyd, Fairport Convention, and R.E.M., has been honoring Drake for years through a series of tribute concerts, and eventually he decided to record them. The result is Way to Blue. Joe Boyd recently joined us to talk about his former collaborator, and we began with their introduction. The bass player for Fairport Convention, Ashley Tiger Hutchings, when the Fairport played a 24-hour anti-war marathon at the Roundhouse in London at the end of 68, beginning of 69, that winter, at about 
3 o'clock in the morning or something. The rest of the group had all gone home. And Ashley decided to stick around and hear the other artists who were going to play. And at some ungodly hour, this kid came out and sang a couple of songs. And Ashley approached him and just said, can I have your phone number? And Anyway, he came into my office the next day and gave me this piece of paper and said, call this guy. He's really interesting. <laughs> and so I called him up and he came in and gave me a demo tape and left. And at the end of that day, when everything had calmed down, I was alone in my office. I put this little tape on a reel-to-reel Wallenzak tape recorder, and I played it once. I played it twice. I played it three times. Mm. I kept playing it. I just it was. I think it had three songs, maybe four, and I just couldn't get over it. How did it jibe, Joe, the songs and the sound you heard coming from that tape with what I gather was kind of a tall, awkward, gangly kid, shy, hair in his eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, he was good looking and he was clearly from that world that I had gotten to know a bit and was kind of both intrigued and repelled by, (laughs) which is the English upper middle class. You know, the kind of uh, offhand, slightly self-deprecating use of language, mm. the accent, the kind of very, very well-bred accent. Can't think of any other songs to do. What the good I do? That would be interesting. He had a lot of those mannerisms, but there was also underneath it this kind of hesitancy, this shyness. And he was so—he was very good-looking, very tall, but he kind of stooped and as if he was kind of apologetic about his stature. Mm. And um, he smoked. He asked if I could, if he could smoke when we had our meeting, and his fingers were very kind of yellowed from tobacco smoke, and kind of his nails were long, so he could play the guitar, but they were also dirty. So he had that sort of mixture of very well-bred accent and obvious intelligence and at the same time kind of, uh, I don't know, an apologetic, low self-esteem, I don't know, something in that area. Well, so you mentioned here's this guy with his voice and guitar that are so striking. It's late 68, early 69, and you're in the middle of the folk revival in the UK. There's also the blues rock thing going on, psychedelia is creeping in. Where does Drake fit into all of this? Well, he didn't, which is why I liked it. I didn't really like singer-songwriters much. Uh, the whole thing of the white, middle-class, anglophone singer-songwriter with a bit of blues, bit of country, bit of folk mixed in and then writing songs about their anguished lives hmm. never really appealed to me as a genre. So the fact that Nick was so unusual and so far removed from the norm was what appealed to me. He wasn't. I mean, he wasn't part of the folk scene. He didn't have the kind of chord changes that you heard in Jackson C. Frank or Paul Simon or the British ones. You know, it certainly had very little to do with Martin Carthy or Sandy Denny or, you know, that kind of songwriting that was very rooted in British traditional music. It was something else, you know. He, He was getting signals from another broadcasting tower, you know, a completely different one. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I realized that one of the strongest things um, 
influencing him was his mother. Hmm. In what way? She wrote on the piano, and I don't think she was trained particularly. I think she'd had classical piano lessons, but her voicings of chords are quite unusual. I mean, they're a little bit, you hear little reflect inflections from Noel Coward, from Flanders and Swan, from light operetta or something like that. And when I first heard her songs, years after both she and Nick had passed away, I was stunned because I said, wow, that's why Nick tuned his guitar in such <laughs> complex ways. Happiness is like a bird with 20 wings. Try to catch him as he flies. Happiness is like a bird that only sings when his head is in the skies. You can try to make him walk beside you. You can say the door is open wide. If you grab at him, woe betide you. I know because I've tried. There was also a poetic sensibility in the lyrics. Where do you think that was coming from? Well, Nick was uh, a very well-educated man. He'd been to Marlborough School. And I think, particularly in those days, you know, before the Cultural Revolution, which tended to dilute uh, you know, the, the concept of classics. Uh, he had a very, very thorough grounding in the Romantic Poets and John Donne, Andrew Marvell. I mean, you know, Shakespeare, of course. Mm -hmm. And he really knew how to use words. A black-eyed dog, he knew my name. A black-eyed dog, he knew my name. Even when he was in his worst, darkest period in the, year, in the year before his death, you know, writing a song like Black Eyed Dog, you know, as an image of death, as an image of an end, of doom. It's masterfully evocative and poetic and, and sophisticated. Yeah, I think some people have this impression of him because he died so young that there's a maudlin aspect to it or sentimental or um, confessional. You know, like, oh, he's singing about his poor, poor, pitiful self. And it's it's really not not that at all, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think always in his songs, I mean, there's two things, I think, dominant feelings in those songs. I mean, one, there is a sadness of an outsider looking in, either yearning after Hazy Jane or another girl, or watching other people, you know, observing people who are obviously, you know, which will you go for, which will you choose? You know, he's asking that of a girl. Which will you go for? Which will you love? Which will you choose from? From the stars above? Which will Which way you take for? 
writing about the circle that he knew and his friends and writing about them very much as either an outsider or a kind of yearning suitor who hasn't yet gotten very far. There is a sadness, but there's also a humor. There's a sense of humor. I mean, Poor Boy is a very funny song in a way. I mean, it's a mocking, mocking himself. You know, he's so keen to take a wife if you just dress in white. The year after you met him, 69, you'll, you'd produce Five Leaves Left, his debut album. Was he ambitious? Did he want to be a star? Did he want to be heard by the world? He did, absolutely. I think it, it tortured him that the record didn't immediately get a huge response. And I think, I mean, on one hand, he knew that if he didn't go out and play and talk to audiences and build up a following, that it wasn't going to happen or it was going to be much more difficult. But at the same time, he also found it almost impossible to talk to audiences. He didn't have anything to say. I mean, he found it impossible to talk to people in a room. It was very difficult for him. He stuttered. He was hesitant. But definitely, he, he wanted success. I mean, you know, he knew, I think he knew how good he was. We're going to continue talking about Nick Drake with veteran producer Joe Boyd in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we're going to review a new release by Canadian shoegaze band, The Besnard Lakes. Second face, a 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott, and we're joined this week by producer Joe Boyd. He's the man behind a recent tribute album to Nick Drake called Way to Blue, and he also produced two of Nick Drake's three albums, Five Leaves Left in 1969 and Brighter Later in 1970, which features this song, Fly. Now, of course, Drake brought the melodies and the acoustic guitar playing and those deep lyrics to the table. But, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about your vision for the sound of those albums? There's a lot of lush orchestration. When I heard those first three or four songs and I met with Nick, one of the sort of examples that I referenced in in outlining my vision of how I saw this record was the first Leonard Cohen record. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that she will trust you For you've touched her perfect body with your mind In that period, and we're looking at early 69, there had not been... You know, the use of strings, the use of orchestrations on popular music records was usually in a kind of big, glossy, popish sort of way. And also the first James Taylor record that Peter Asher produced for Apple. And so I threw this at Nick. I said, these songs need strings. They need arrangements. They need, you know, other instruments. They need, but not big and brassy and pop, but sort of intimate and classical and and artful. And he sort of grunted and said, yes, yes, I like the idea of strings. And then he said something, he, he actually said to me in that first meeting, he said something like, I've actually played a gig at Cambridge with a string quartet. Hmm. And I still kind of wonder at the fact that I didn't immediately say, and who wrote those arrangements for the string yeah, quartet? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Because my idea was, my first thing I did once we all agreed on everything was I called up Peter Asher and I asked him who did the arrangements for the James Taylor record. So I got this name, Richard Houston. We went to see him. We pl- Nick played him the songs. We left him a tape. You can hear one of Houston's arrangements is on that compilation I put together called Time of No Reply. I was born to love no one no one to love me Only the wind in the long green grass The frost in a broken tree It's a little, just a little overdone. It's all a bit elaborate. And Nick, I could just see him getting depressed. And Nick was really nervous because he was afraid I liked it. <laughs> and I said, uh, this doesn't work. And he looked so relieved. Mm. So we were saying, well, what do we do now? You know, where do we go now? And then Nick said, uh, well, uh, or, um, <laughs> I have this friend. He's he, in Cambridge. He's, he's written arrangements for some of my songs already. They're, they're, they're not too bad. <laughs> and, you know, and so I thought, hmm... Because I knew by this time I'd gotten to know Nick a bit, and I knew how hesitant he was and how bashful he was. So I agreed to drive up to Cambridge and meet this guy. 
Robert Kirby. And uh, I loved the way he loved Nick. And so we booked another session. And, and, and um, I think there were six strings. And John Wood was, you know, putting up first one microphone and then another and then another and, you know, going through the, all the strings individually. And it was kind of tantalizing, like, wow. That's really interesting, but I can't really hear the whole thing. And then finally he put all the mics up together to hear the thing. And Nick was singing without a guitar. And it was a song I didn't even know because Nick didn't play it on the guitar. So he had never played it to me. And it was Way to Blue. And you know that string arrangement. And I heard that string arrangement and I just was floored. Don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard the way to find the sun? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. And then to bring in some of the talents you did to play on these records, a John Cale, a Richard Thompson, a Dave Maddox, you knew this kid could deliver in the presence of, of, of heavy hitters like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no question. Nick, and, and one of the things that, that I learned very early on, which was really strange, was that when you're recording with Nick and other musicians, not at first, but eventually, John Wood and I got into the habit of shutting off Nick's guitar and voice in the control room, just muting his channels so that we could focus on everybody else to make sure we really spotted an error or a timing glitch or something like that because we knew by then that Nick was perfect. Mm -hmm. Wow. There would never be a flubbed guitar note. He would never sing flat. That's great. Did you have Nick playing... I mean, were his performances basically done live with the oh, yeah. orchestra? Wow, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. When the day is done, hope so much your race will be all wrong. Then you find to jump the gun. Have to go back where you began. When the day is done. You must have been a little dumbstruck seeing a guy this fully formed just sort of walk into your. <laughs> walk into your office one day and go, where did you come from? There mu- it must have come through your head at certain points. Like, It's amazing that this guy wasn't more famous before he met you, right, in some ways? Well, he was only 19. He'd yeah. only ever played at, at little parties in Cambridge. Yeah. I mean, and, the thing, and also you understood why he wasn't well-known, because he never played <laughs> in, in clubs. You know, yeah. He just didn't have a career. Right. And, so, and I felt, at the, at my first feeling was, I mean, in a way... One of the regrets and one of the chagrins that I have about the whole thing is that even though I wasn't, you know, I, I had this production company and I had, you know, management and, you know, I had this little office and I wasn't making, we weren't making money. We weren't doing fantastically well financially. But at some level, all of my choices that I'd made since I set out to be a record producer, general, almost not all of them, but most of them, had worked out really well. I somehow got you know, pushed aside with Pink Floyd, but I spotted Sid Barrett and the Floyd, and I tried to sign them to Polydor, and then I produced their first record, and 
I was clearly right, even though I didn't mm-hmm. end up making the money being their producer for the record. But it was a choice that I'd made, and I felt, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm smart, you know. And then I, I took the Incredible String Band and pulled them out of folk clubs, and then Fairport Convention, and Sandy Denny joins them, and Richard is acknowledged as a genius guitar player. And, and then I find Nick, and I thought, hey, I'm pretty smart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, everything's everything's going exactly the way I think it will go. And then in a way, the first first you had in, in 69, the first thing that happened was the terrible accident where the drummer of Fairport got killed. And that was a huge blow. And then Nick's record came out and nobody bought it. And then the Incredible String Band decided to be Scientologists. <laughs> you know, and in the space of about six months uh. – it went from the road looking smooth and straight ahead to all of a sudden all these bumps and curves and setbacks and and things. And I wasn't really – I didn't have a plan B. You mm-hmm. know, I sort of assumed that I'd put out this Five Leaves Left record and it would be like the Leonard Cohen record. You mm-hmm. know, everybody loved it and reviewed it and said, wow, this is incredible and Leonard Cohen is a genius. And I thought – and Leonard Cohen wasn't doing any gigs. He said, I'm a poet. I'm not a singer. And so he wasn't performing. And I thought, well, Nick's not performing. Leonard's not performing. Nick's a genius. Leonard Cohen's a genius. Ergo, (laughs) this record will do what, you know, but it didn't. And and so it was kind of knocked me sideways and I didn't really have a response except let's make another record only better. Mm -hmm. Well, neither Five Leaves Left in 69 or Brighter Later in 70 connected with an audience. Uh, Drake went on to make Pink Moon in 72 and it was a really different record. Stripped down, minimalist, really spare. Why did you part ways for that release? What happened was that when we were finishing Brighter Later, during that process, I had kind of burned out. I was sort of in despair about what was going to happen to my production company. We were in debt. And at that point... I got an offer from Warner Brothers Mm. to go work for them in California. And I went to Chris Blackwell at Island, which was the label that Witch Season was licensed to. And he, Chris, agreed to buy me out, take over the company, pay off all the debts, and keep working with the artists. I mean, it was a wonderful thing that he did. And so when we were finishing Brighter Later, I already was booked to go to California. And Nick, I think, was, I don't know, you know, it's hard to know what he felt, but I think at some level he may have felt deserted. Mm. But he did say that he thought he would do the next record just with himself and guitar. And so in the end, he didn't hire another. He just went in. I mean, he worked all the records we did together were with John Wood as engineer. And so what he just did was he called up John. He said, I want to go in the studio and put down these tracks for my next record. And so John effectively produced it. Mm. A much simpler record, a much more spare record. What did you think the first time you heard Pink Moon? I was horrified. I mean, I thought this is really writing off any chances he has of success because it was just so stark and so simple. And, of course, Nick's ghost has the last laugh as Pink Moon outsells Brighter Later and Five Leaves Left by some margin. And certainly resonates with people emotionally in a very deep way. Yeah. I mean, 
And it's hard to say. I mean, there's an element there. I mean, certainly we get an awful lot of people, for them, the first thing they ever heard of Nick was the Volkswagen commercial, which used Pink Moon. So I written on a so it say go out and buy Pink Moon and they play that album and they play that album and then they go, oh, he's got other albums. And then they go and they buy Brighter Later or Five Leaves Left and they go, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strings? <laughs> I get letters and emails from people saying, you know, fundamentally accusing me of being the commercial corrupter of this beautiful, <laughs> pure spirit. And, they say, and a lot of people write to the estate or they write to me, why don't you put out Five Leaves Left and Brighter Later with just the guitar and voice. <laughs> and yeah. I have to explain, well, A, it's not possible. We recorded everything at the same time, so there's leak. And But also the thing was that it was – Nick worked with Robert Kirby on those arrangements. I mean Nick was the one who brought Robert Kirby to me. You know, right. He was the one who had this vision. And it seemed like Nick's peers appreciated him. The critics loved him. John Cale, you, you, you brought John Cale in. Uh, or maybe John Cale just inserted himself. I'm not quite sure exactly yeah. how that happened with Brighter Later, but you know Cale's contribution on uh, on Fly and uh, Northern Sky pretty beautiful in its own right. He un- he seemed to understand what what Drake was about as well. I've been a long time that I'm waiting. I've been a long time that I'm blown. I've been a long time that I've wondered. He was working on the Nico record, Desert Shore, that I produced. And he just said, what else are you doing? Let me hear other stuff. You know, and I played him some Nick, and he went crazy. And he said, i got to go meet this guy now, and went over to his house. And the next thing you know, they'd worked out an arrangement of Fly in Northern Sky recorded it the next day. And, you know, I've heard you say this before, Joe, in interviews. You've worked with so many great artists, I mean, from Fairport to R.E.M. Brighter Later seems to be the one that holds up the best for you of all the the records you've done. Well, it it definitely, I enjoy listening to that record. I mean, there's there's the two records that I've been involved with as a producer that I listen to most often just to sort of lie down on the sofa and put a record on is Brighter Later and... Reggae Got Soul by Toots and the Maytals. <laughs> mm. That's great. <laughs> Little contrast there. Yeah. We're, we're talking to Joe Boyd. And, Joe, I think this brings us up to the present. You've had the vision for a Nick Drake tribute album for a long time, but Way to Blue isn't a conventional tribute release with different artists covering Nick's tunes in the studio. It began as a series of concerts, right? Yeah. Why don't uh, other types of tribute albums work? Well, when I sold Hannibal Records to Ryko Disc... One of the first things that the, that the Rikodis guy said was, oh, we've, we've got this project we've been toying with about a tribute to Nick Drake. So now that you're part of our team, you can supervise it. And I said, 
okay. <laughs> the person who brought it in had this vision, which was basically the standard vision of the tribute record, which is you ask so-and-so to do a track, you ask this person to do a track, you ask all these different people to do tracks, and they do tracks on their own, and they send the file to you. And even back in 1990, when this, 91, when this was going on, I already knew that this kind of approach to tribute records didn't work. There had been a number of such records out, and they always sounded like they were kind of put together that way. They didn't have a unity to them, and none of them ever sold. You know, there's been very few tribute records that have been successful. Right. And I think for quite good reason, because usually they don't really work as records. I mean, one of the first reactions I got is basically, why? Nick Drake's versions are perfect. Why would you ever want to do different versions? And one of the things I always tried to do in selecting the singers for these shows was to make sure we didn't select people who sound like Nick. And to me, having such a diverse and very different group of voices singing his songs show the songs for what they are, which is great songs. You came with the dawn Could say that the fact that Nick didn't make it in the 60s, there are no 1960s movies with Nick Drake songs as the soundtrack, and people's grandparents aren't always banging on about the time they saw Nick Drake. You know, <laughs> means that that each new generation can make Nick their own. You know, can sort of respond to him the way that speaks to them. You know, you can be sociological and analyze times and changing musical tastes and styles and all these kinds of things, but ultimately it's about a genius, you know, a guy who stands outside of time and I think will always speak to new generations. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to Joe Boyd. Joe, thanks once again for being our guest on Sound Opinions. A pleasure. Sound Opinions listeners, we want to hear your take on Nick Drake and his legacy. Were you an early adopter, or did you two discover him decades later? Share your comments on that or anything in the world of music at 888-859-1800. When we return to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, the latest from the Montreal Quartet, the Besnard Lakes, and my addition to the Desert Island Jukebox.
Lifting a mask from a local clown Feeling down like him Between the light in the station bar Travelling far with sin Sailing downstairs to the northern Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called 46 Satires from the new Besnard Lakes album called Until in Excess, Imperceptible UFO. That's a very flaming lips-like album title there, Jim, actually. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing anymore. Yeah, yeah I don't know either, but uh, it's a Montreal quartet, the Besnard Lakes. This is their fourth studio album. They started about a decade ago in Montreal, basically a husband-wife duo, Jace Lasik guitarist, singer, producer, and his wife, Olga Gorias, the singer, bassist, and co-songwriter in the band. Lasik also runs a studio out of Montreal called Break Glass. He's done a number of prominent bands there, Wolf Parade, Sunset Rubdown, The Deers, Stars, all have recorded there. And he's also kind of the studio guru, the mastermind behind a lot of these Besnard Lakes records. The first record was basically a, a duo record between him and Gorias in 2003 called Volume 1, they expanded the lineup and the sound on the next two records. 2007, the Besnard Lakes are the Dark Horse, and 2010, the Besnard Lakes are the Roaring Night, two of the best albums of that decade. Now they're back with album number four. The lineup has sort of been in flux for a number of years, but now they've settled on a quartet. It's Lasik, Gorias, plus Kevin Lang and Richard White. And here's a track from this new album. Once again, the title of the album is Until in Excess, Imperceptible UFO, and the track is People of the Sticks from Besnard Lakes on Sound Opinions.
That is People of the Sticks, a song from album number four by the Besnard Lakes, Until in Excess, Imperceptible UFO. Greg, we were pondering that uh, album title. I think the key words might be excess and imperceptible. Now, I know. I know because you have loved this band in the past, and I know because of that gleeful little dance in place you're doing in your chair as you hear that song. I know you love this band, and I've, I've certainly respected them. They were guests on Sound Opinions in between, I think, those two albums, Are the Dark Horse and uh, Are the Roaring Night. But I don't see any growth on this record. I-, I lived with it for a good couple of weeks, kept waiting for it to kick in. It's languid. It's all in the same sort of one-note rhythm. Uh, there's a lot more of Olga's voice, and that's very beautiful, but I'm not hearing killer melodies. Don't accuse me of being an insensitive, raucous <laughs> lout, okay? I played that wonderful song by Game Theory a little earlier, and we just celebrated Nick Drake. I can do and love quiet, but there's a real lack of melody or fresh ideas on this album. It, it's not a horrible album, but it's not a great album. So I've got to give it a burn it on our buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Well, I think they're up against their own legacy. Are the Dark Horse and Are the Roaring Night in 2007, 2010. I think those albums are masterpieces. And I think this record is going to be found slightly lacking in comparison to those two. But I think it has its own rewards as well. It's a slower, dreamier version of what the band has been doing in the past. And I really see them as a combination of that British shoegaze sound from the early 90s combined with sort of surfs-up era Beach Boys, late 60s Beach Boys, that's more part orchestrated of my, stuff. That's part of my problem. There's way too much of that California Laurel Canyon <laughs> mellowness throughout all of indie rock these days. I, I didn't like it the first time. I really don't like it now. But they have that slow, patient build on a lot of these songs. Eight songs, all of them at least five minutes long. Yes, it is a little slower moving, but I think it's kind of like a landslide is slower moving. Eventually, it's going to overwhelm you. They're going to bury you in this beauty. And that's a good thing. A different sounding record for them, no doubt about it. But Gorillaz's bass lines, wow. You know, you, let's, let's use another Beach Boys reference here. Carol Kay, who played all those great bass lines on a lot of those Beach Boys records in the mid to late 60s. I think Gorillaz is doing the same thing for this band. In the past, they were singing about spies and sort of espionage as kind of these conceits on those earlier records. The tone here is more personal and heartbreaking, and I like that as well. Yes, I think there is growth on this record. The immediacy isn't there of those earlier two records. It's slightly behind them in terms of greatness, but it's still a buy it album for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Jim Dirigatis, a man who loves the sunshine, has got the beach blanket out. He's going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Jim, what are you going to play? Greg, sometimes there's a topical reason for us to choose a song, and sometimes uh, we're just diving into those boundless stacks and, and looking for a tune we want to hear. And I'd come up with, we got to play some Veruca Salt. This is a band that both of us covered the rise and fall in the 90s in that moment of alternative rock. A fine band led by two very talented Chicago women, Nina Gordon and Louise Post. They were here and then they were gone. Many people may have forgotten them. I found out there actually is a news peg for 
for playing this song. Mid-March, they uh, announced that they're reuniting in their original lineup and they're going to get back together, which is really surprising because it was one of the nastiest splits ever. Two wonderful albums between 93 and 96 from Veruca Salt with them as a duo. They really complemented each other, both as songwriters and as singers when those two voices came together, as lyricists, as conceptualists. And and if Louise was the uh, guitar heroine, a wonderful guitar player who somehow brought all of classic rock into a post-punk sort of sarcastic 90s sensibility, then Nina was the real uh, melodic genius. She went on to make a very kind of sub-Stevie Nicks acoustic record, while Louise went on to make one Veruca Salt album more, Alone. This single introduced them to the world and to Chicago, really. It was it was traded on cassettes back in the day. Remember the first time you heard Seether? Yep. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful song. An incredibly tuneful eruption of female rage and anger. That's what some people hear it as. Other fans have given it very complicated readings involving all sorts of sexual metaphors. I'll leave it at that. It's a timeless song. It's a wonderful song. It's both very much of its era, but I think stands up as as wonderfully fresh and exciting today if you haven't heard it before. Here is Veruca Salt with Seether on Sound Opinions.
Either by Veruca Salt from the 1994 album American Thighs. That was my DIJ for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, the Sound Opinions World Tour continues. We're going to visit the music of Japan. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he can't fight to see there either. sound opinions everyone's a critic so now it's time to hear what you have to say new messages hi i wanted to leave my message about my memory of roger ebert first movie i remember him ever reviewing and what was very significant to me was Ghost in the Shell got me into anime, showed me that critics could talk about cartoons that were adults, and it pushed me into that new world of cinema. Secondly, I don't think there's anybody's voice on the planet, other than my mom, that I've fallen asleep to more often than his. I've fallen asleep to constantly listening to the audio commentaries of Casablanca, Citizen Kane, and Dark City, all done by our Roger Ebert. I'm going to miss him a lot. He's very important to me. Thanks, guys, for doing that tribute to him. Bye. Greg and Jim, this is Sally calling from Winterhausen, Germany. Back when I lived in New Buffalo, Michigan, I went with my friend Laura to a little hot dog stand called Jenny's Big Weenie. And there, as we entered, stood Roger Ebert. And he was discussing with the person working there, blind Lithuanians. And my friend Laura turned to him and said, I'm Lithuanian. And he said, yeah, but you're not blind. And um, that was it. That's my Roger Ebert story, my claim to fame. Thanks for you guys' show, and look forward to the next show. Bye-bye. Hi, uh, Greg, Jim. This is Jeff from Middletown, Ohio. And I'm calling in response to uh, your query about our uh, favorite song about a politician or a political figure. I would say probably two. They're both about the same individual, Cowboy Ronald Reagan. First would be... Prince's Ronnie Talk to Russia, which is one of the bright spots of his uneven but still very good controversy LP. And uh, the other would be uh, John Mellencamp's Country Gentleman off of Big Daddy which is just a really stark uh, song that I think surprised a lot of people at the time because a lot of people of a certain political bent thought that John Cougar Mellencamp was right with them. And may have turned a few people off, but uh, that's the price you pay when you want to you know, produce your art. Got gentleman walked a million miles Got a money in his pocket Did it all with a very handsome smile Now he's living it up in a great big office 
He ain't gonna help no poor man. He ain't gonna help no poor man. He ain't gonna help no poor man. He's just gonna help his Thank you. Bye bye. Hi, this is Allison from New York. Uh, you guys are awesome. Really enjoy your show, and you make me have an open, more open mind about music that I may have dismissed without hearing your comments. Uh, you just asked a question about a favorite song about a political figure, and I know this is really not the kind of thing you guys, the kind of band you guys would ever feature, but I'd like to say that the Dixie Chicks, Not Ready to Make Nice, is one of my absolute favorite FU type of songs, and I really admire them and feel bad about what happened to them commercially after that, what some people deem a blunder politically. So anyway, thanks for all you do, and I uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.